Good morning. It is so good to be here this morning. My name is Zach, and I grew up at this church, and I get to be back for the next two weeks, and I'm so excited about that, and I feel so privileged to be here. I hope you feel privileged to be able to be here this morning, to come here on a Sunday with your brothers and sisters and sing to God. I want to start things off with an interactive group activity, and everybody has to play along. Everyone has to participate in this, but it's really easy, I promise. Here's what we're going to do. You have to participate. I'm going to put a word up on the slide, and then I'm going to count to three, and I want you to read the word out loud. Sounds simple enough? All right, let's try one. One, two, three. Who here just said caramel? Okay, now where are the caramel people? Some of you are looking at each other like, I thought I knew who you were. You say caramel? (laughs) Let's try another one. One, two, three. (laughs) I have to be honest. I don't know how to say this word. I avoid saying it. I just say that state to the right of California because I don't know. I've offended some some Nevadans, some Nevadans before. See, I avoid it. Let's try another one. One, two, three. People are starting to say their own louder to try and drown out the other people. (laughs) I say pajamas. I have been ridiculed by the pajamas people for this. And so sometimes I just say PJs to dodge the whole controversy. All right, one more. One, two, three. People are trying out the other one. They're like, what do I say? Syrup? Syrup? Syrup is the right one. If you said syrup... I have to disagree. (laughs) Okay, let's try one more. This one's a little different. I'm going to put up a picture of a thing. And when you see this thing, I'm going to count to three and I want you to say what it is. Okay? Here we go. One, two, three. (laughs) That one kind of split the room. (laughs) Some people are like, of course it's a fax machine. And other people are like, why is there a phone stuck to the side of a printer? What is that? (laughs) I knew what this was, but I have to confess, I don't know how to use one. If I had to send a fax, I would have to Google it. So I'm kind of in the middle on this, I guess. It's funny, though, isn't it? It's funny how many ways we could think of to divide up the people in this room if we wanted to, isn't it? I mean, we've got the pajamas, pajamas people. We've got the know what a fax machine is and don't know what it is kind of people. I mean, we could sit here all day and think of different ways that we could split up and divide this group of people into categories. As soon as you get any group of people together, they start to sort themselves out like it's a law of nature. I mean, we prefer to be around people who are like us, and that's okay, that makes sense, but it can lead to a line-drawing and an us-and-a-them mentality that tricks you into thinking my side is right and their side is the bad guys. I'm guessing a lot of you have noticed this playing out in our culture. I probably don't have to work very hard to convince you of this. I mean, has anyone else noticed that America seems a little tense lately? Just me. Has anyone else noticed that about our country? It seems like people are at each other's throats for just about everything these days. Like we're finding ways to sort ourselves into sides 
for pretty much every issue you can imagine. Literally, think of any hot-button issue there is, and you know what the two sides are. And whichever side you pick is supposed to define what kind of person you are, who your people are, and who your enemies are. This week and next week, while I get to be here with you, we're doing a short series that I'm calling Irresistible, Why the Church Won't Die. Maybe you've been feeling lately like the church in America has overstayed its welcome. Like the, ch- like the culture that we live in is unstoppable and it's taking over whether we like it or not and the church isn't really wanted, much less needed, by anyone anymore. Maybe you've been feeling like the church in this country is too divided or too old school or too unpopular to have a place in the future of this country. If you feel like that, I understand how you feel. And if you've been feeling like that, I'm so glad that you're here this week. Because this is exactly what I want to address. This week and next week, while I get to be here with you, all I want to do is convince you of one thing. They need us. Now, more than ever before, they need us. And what the church has to offer this culture is irresistible if we can get them to see it. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is go back and look at two stories in the book of Acts about the origin of this movement called church that we're a part of here this morning. That early church, they were a lot like us. The cultures and governments that they lived in hated what they stood for because they saw it as a threat. They set out to discredit them, and they set out to destroy them. And by all accounts, if you read through the book of Acts, it should have worked. They should have won. With all the political and religious and cultural elites united against this tiny defenseless movement, the church should have died out in the first century. So why didn't it? This week and next week, I just want to convince you of one thing. They need us. Now, just like then. And what we have to offer to them, if we can get them to see it, is irresistible. Let me show you what I mean when I say they need us. Take a look at this graph that I found. It's from a research study by Pew Research in uh, 2014. It looks complicated, but let me explain. The blue curve on this graph represents Democrats, and the red curve is Republicans. Now, that first uh, side of it from 1994, what you can see is that the two are pretty close together. The spectrum that they're on is the extremeness of the views. So more to the left means more left-wing views, and more to the right, more right-wing views. So the two white lines that are vertical, that's the median. So you can see in 1994, they were pretty close together. In fact, they overlapped more than they didn't. A lot of purple on that graph. In 2004, 10 years later, they took the same survey, and you can see those two vertical white lines have started to move apart. And then... In 2014, there's more red and blue than there is purple. And you can see those white lines, the median for each party, and how extreme their views are, have moved apart significantly. This is called political polarization. And the rate in our country is increasing. There's less and less purple as each side moves more and more to crowd to the extremes of its view. Let me show you another graph that says the same thing in a different way. The top is Republicans. The bottom is Democrats, and the vertical line is the average person in the other party. So, in 1994, about 60% of Republicans were to the right of the average Democrat, and about 60% of Democrats were to the left of the average Republican. 
Now, fast forward to 2014, 90% of people in each political party are to either the right or the left of the average on the other side. And if that seems like a lot of data coming at you fast and that was a little overwhelming, here's what that means. America is kind of tearing itself in half, and the rate at which we're doing so is increasing. The most significant thing I think about this study is that it happened in 2014, before the last election, which I think was one of the most divisive events maybe ever in this country, at least in my lifetime. This was an interesting study to read, and if you're interested in it, I'd love to send it to you. The same study said this, and here's the last thing I'll say about this division. Between 1994 and 2014, in this 20-year gap, the average gap between Republicans and Democrats in their views on every single political issue measured more than doubled. Now, I'm not here this morning to talk about politics, I promise. If you're getting nervous, I'm not going to talk about politics. This is what I want to talk about. Even as we get closer and closer together with airplanes and the internet, I see cracks spiderwebbing out across our country and across our globe. Tension spreading along those fault lines between races, countries, generations, genders, churches, and of course the giant chasm between political parties. And I'm sure you've seen this too. You've felt the eruptions, the seismic shock waves coming from those fault lines. People lose friends over this stuff. Relationships break down and deteriorate over this stuff, falling victim to the all-consuming divide of us and them. And before we can catch our breath from that last election, which was so divisive, we're hurtling into another one in 2020. They're already talking about it. And I don't picture that graph starting to move back together. I don't know about you, but I think it's going to move even farther apart, even faster. What blows my mind about this the most, though, is that everywhere you look, nobody wants this to be the reality. Nobody likes it. Everybody wants a middle ground and unity where we can get along. It seems like people in America are starving on both sides for a ceasefire to find common ground and make peace. But the fact is, anytime you get a group of people together, they start to sort themselves like it's a law of nature. We can't figure out how to get along with each other. It seems like there's tons of reasons to divide and we can't find a stronger reason to unite. This was the most dangerous threat faced by the early church, which you see all throughout the book of Acts, and that's where we'll be this morning if you want to turn there. The most dangerous threat the early church ever faced was division. And that's saying a lot because the early church faced some pretty serious threats. If you read through Acts, they get imprisoned, they get tortured, they get murdered in cold blood in the streets. But I think the most dangerous threat the early church ever faced was division. Most of the books in the New Testament are letters written by a missionary named Paul to churches. And a huge part of what these letters contain, if you read through them all, is instructions on how to get along with each other. In church after church after church, Paul's writing letters to try and put out fires and resolve arguments. He's like an adult wading into the food fight at the daycare, dragging kids off each other. And a lot of their issues are similar to ours. Arguments about what church should look like when we gather how we should interpret scriptures, how we should resolve disagreements between each other. But by far, if you read through these, the biggest issue that was trying to divide the early church by far is the cultural and ethnic differences between Jews and Gentiles. We need to pause here for a second and understand this division. 
It was always part of God's plan to open up his kingdom to Gentiles from the beginning. I mean, you can see it all throughout the Old Testament foreshadowed there. It was always God's plan to let the Gentiles join. What's crazy is the timing when God gave the green light to let them join. The early church was blossoming in Jerusalem. It was doing amazing. Thousands of people were getting converted, but they were all former Jews. No Gentiles yet. And then all of a sudden, Stephen gets murdered and the church gets scattered out And this new villain named Saul is going door to door and dragging people out and locking them up. It's the first wave of real persecution against the church. And in the middle of that, God gives the green light to let the Gentiles join up. God comes to his servant Peter and gives him a vision. And that vision is basically God saying, go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius and baptize him. Now, there's a lot of other stuff with a sheet full of animals. It's an amazing vision. Uh, you should go read about it in Acts chapter 10. But the gist of it is that God tells Peter, go find this Gentile named Cornelius and baptize him. And Peter says, no way. This is a test. I'm not going to go associate with Gentiles. They're unclean. They're pagans. And then God says one of the most important sentences in the New Testament for us today. He tells Peter this, don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. And so then Peter goes and he meets up with this guy Cornelius and Cornelius and his whole family get baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. Peter sees the Holy Spirit come down on these Gentiles and they get baptized. Now where I want to pick up the story though is when the early church hears about this news and that is recorded in Acts chapter 11. So Peter gets back to Jerusalem and he breaks this earth-shattering news. Hey guys, The Gentiles are in. Now let's pick up there in verse uh, 1 of Acts 11 and look at their reaction. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, that's the Jews, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men, that's the Gentiles, and ate with them. Now this could be bad. I mean, this could be really, really bad. Jews don't associate with Gentiles. That's been bred into them for centuries. But more importantly, God doesn't speak to Gentiles, and God certainly doesn't give his Holy Spirit to Gentiles. We have to understand the nature of this threat here, because this is our greatest threat today, disunity. If these Jews aren't willing to let these Gentiles join, this movement will die out. It will be stuck as some subculture of Judaism forever, and it'll never break out. We're talking about the reason the church won't die, and that's because our message is irresistible. But if the church was ever going to die, this is how it will happen. We can't be stopped through persecution. The stories in the book of Acts and the stories of church history prove it. If you try and kill Christians and persecute Christians, we explode. It's one of the greatest things that can happen in terms of church growth. No, the thing that comes closest to killing the early church and killing us today isn't the attack on the body from the outside. It's the disease that kills the body from the inside, the disease of disunity and division. If anything is ever going to stop us, it's going to be us. And that's what almost happens here in Acts chapter 11. They say, you went into the house of Gentiles and you ate with them. And there at this crossroads where God opens the floodgates to the nations, this is the first time this vulnerable church meets its greatest threat. And Peter knows what he saw. He can't deny it. 
And so he tells them the whole story about his vision and about Cornelius. And here's how it ends. Skip down to verse 15 and look at this, what Peter says to them. He says, As I began to speak to Cornelius and his family, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, if that went by a little fast for you, what we just read in Acts 11.18 is a miracle. You could take this verse and slap it up right next to the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and turning water into wine. What we just read in that verse where they said, oh, so even the Gentiles are in, that's great, and they praise God. That is a miracle. That is God breaking into the fabric of reality and doing something impossible. It's like he just flipped a switch and centuries of ethnic and cultural animosity evaporated. Isn't it incredible to see how our God can turn panic into praise, cynicism into celebration. These people hated each other. They scorned each other for centuries, and suddenly nobody cared about how God was going to make this work or why God would do this now or what would be the rules of this new relationship. Nobody asked if it was fair for the Gentiles to join and they didn't have to go through everything the Jews went through or whether it was legal for them to join under Jewish law or how the PR angle would look with the Jews back in Jerusalem if we could convince them. They had no further objections. Why? They only heard one thing, and that was the end of the discussion. God gave them the same gift God gave us. That's it. Peter doesn't make any appeal to ethics or to politics or to history or to biology. He could have made all of those appeals to show that Gentiles are equal to Jews, but he doesn't need to. He doesn't bring any other reasons at all. He already played his trump card. It's only one sentence long. God gave them the same gift God gave us. What possible objection can you think of to that? Do you think God got it wrong? He accidentally poured out his Holy Spirit on the wrong people? Do you think God made a mistake, and if maybe he had come to consult you first, you could have explained to him why that was a bad move? They heard Peter say, they got the Spirit, we got the Spirit. And that's the end of the discussion. Of course, it won't be easy for the Jews to harmonize with the Gentiles. They are going to struggle a ton with this. The rest of Acts, and all throughout Paul's letters, like we talked about, we see customs and cultures clashing. These people struggle for generations to figure out how to get along, but they never quit trying. Because God gave them the same Spirit. None of the things that could separate the Jews from the Gentiles, strong though they are, ingrained though they are, are stronger than this new thing that's come along to unite them, the Spirit of God. And this is the philosophy that we see acted out across thousands of churches in America this morning. Right here in this room this morning. It's insane. It's a miracle. All across deep, divided, sensitive America There are churches full of Democrats and Republicans, people who voted for Trump and Hillary, people of all races and opinions about race, people who fall into every category on every issue about how church should work, standing next to each other, singing to the same God, serving alongside each other, reading the Bible together. They respect each other, 
Some of them are right about things. Some of them are wrong about things. But they treat each other like family. They call each other brother and sister. This should be on the news. To an exhausted country, bracing itself for another slugfest of an election in 2020, the kind of unity that we practice every week is irresistible. You can't find it anywhere else. Somebody once asked the famous cultural anthropologist, Margaret Mead, a question that stuck with me. This is a famous story. She's a cultural anthropologist who studies the origins of human civilization. And they asked her, what is the earliest sign you've ever seen of human civilization? The oldest thing to prove that people were living in a society together. And they expected her to say something like, Technology, like some kind of fish hook or agricultural technique or architecture, some way of building that let people live together. But this is what she said. We found a skeleton with a broken femur. Your femur is this long bone in your leg right here. And she said, we found a skeleton that the femur had broken, but it had been set and it had healed. And she said, that's the oldest sign I've ever seen of human civilization. And the reason is this. If you break your femur and you're by yourself, That's a death sentence. You can't fix this on your own. Maybe you could manage to set the bone, but then you're going to be helpless while it heals. But the fact that they found a skeleton with a femur that had broken and healed entirely meant that somebody was helpless and somebody else came along and found them and helped and nursed them back to health, something they never could have done on their own. Civilization, she concluded, does not begin with technology or industry or even diplomacy. Civilization begins with compassion. I agree with her on this. We can't all start living together unless we agree as a group that when somebody breaks his femur, the rest of us are going to help him. Because what if it's me next time? I'm going to need your help just like you're going to need mine. But in church, we take it even farther than that. Our compassion is not because we expect anything in return. Most of the time, we know we'll get nothing in return. The unity that you see here in this body has nothing to do with whether we think it's valuable or fun to live together in community. A lot of the times it doesn't seem valuable, and a lot of the time it's not fun. But we're bound together by nothing less than the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us. If God gave you the same Spirit that God gave me, that's all I need to know. We're on the same team. You're my family. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what you look like because God doesn't make mistakes when he pours out his Holy Spirit on people and he gave it to you and he gave it to me. The world is always going to be fractured. People are always going to judge each other and rank each other and sort each other because it's a law of nature. The selfless and beautiful unity that you see in churches cannot be found anywhere else. We try to justify it as a culture. We say things like, all men are created equal, and that's why we should be unified. But it's a fact that based on human metrics, all men are not created equal. Any way that humans can measure each other, we're not equal. Some people are faster than other people. Some people have a better sense of smell than other people. Some people are more patient than others. Some are tall, some are short. By any standard you can think of that we could measure each other, we're not all going to be equal because we're not all clones. By any human standard, we cannot be equal. And America is searching so desperately for any level grounds to line us up on, any plane that's flat where we can say, here, we are all equal, and they can't find it anywhere because they're judging by human standards. But we know where it is, don't we? We've been there. The only level ground in the entire universe is at the foot of the cross. 
Because at the foot of the cross, we are all equally sinful, equally broken. And at the foot of the cross, we are all equally forgiven and equally loved. Those are the standards you can judge people by because those are the only standards that matter. That's what we mean when we say all men are created equal. We all bear the image of God. And in the meantime, we'll leave the judgment up to Him because our standards are superficial and weak. God can read hearts. God can search minds. You can't. On His last night on earth, hours before His brutal crucifixion, Jesus Christ prayed for us. If you haven't read this prayer in a while, it's in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed after the Last Supper, first for Himself, what He was going to go through, then for His disciples and for the church they were going to start. And at the end of this prayer, He does something strange. He prays for us. He says, for everybody who's ever going to believe in this movement, I want to pray for them. And He asked God for one thing. He could have asked for anything. And He asked for one thing over and over and over. I'm going to read this for you. And listen to what Jesus prayed for, for us, the church, From John chapter 17, verse 20, but I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. Jesus says to God, My prayer is not for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought together in complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' final prayer for billions of people who were one day going to join his church was for unity. That's what he wanted for us more than anything in the last hours of his life. He said, God, let them be one just as much as you and me are one. And he goes even further. He says, if they can manage that, if they can be one, that will be proof that this movement is supernatural. That will be proof that I came from you, God, just the fact that these people can get together and get along. And when we get together on Sunday, we are God's answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. When we choose unity over the fake divisions of this world, we are God's answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. If any group on the face of this earth is going to come together and stay together, something supernatural has to happen. And that's what we do. That's what we're doing right now. Gathering in a room with people from different income brackets, people with different views on everything, people who say pajamas, people who say pajamas, And we all sit here and we don't care if somebody doesn't know what a fax machine is. And if all this talk about politics and culture and who voted for who and different views on church is making your blood boil, you're sitting there thinking, no, I'm right and they're wrong and that matters, then you're looking at it just like the Jews looked at it in Acts chapter 11 when they said, wait a minute, how could God possibly want us to eat with Gentiles? They're unclean. To that feeling in you, if you feel that resistance, God says, do not call anything unclean that God has made clean. If you feel like that, if some artificial divisions this world has placed upon your heart are keeping you from fully loving someone who God gave the same Spirit, then you're keeping Jesus' prayer in John 17 from being answered. God gave them, whatever them means to you, the same Spirit He gave you. And there's no argument. There are no further objections. Church doesn't make unity easy. Church makes unity possible. 
And nothing else can, no matter how hard we try. The church is irresistible, and we have a place in the future of this country because the thing that unites us is stronger than literally anything the world can come up with to divide us. We've been there together to the foot of the cross. We've fallen on our knees together on that level ground. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your patience when we buy into this world's fake divisions. Cure our hearts of any us and them that is keeping us from loving each other. For all the brothers and the sisters in this room, I pray that you would unite us as Jesus prayed before his death. Make us one, God. Let us show this divided and hurting world what it looks like when people live together under the same spirit. Thank you for pouring out your spirit equally on all of us. We're equally undeserving, but we know that we are equally loved. In Jesus' name, amen.